Shana Tova, everyone. Gemar Chatima Tova and Shabbat Shalom. For the past ten months, I have felt like a failure as your rabbi. Not a total failure, but at the core of my rabbinate, I have felt like a failure. I've been walking around thinking that while so many good things have happened in our congregation, in our community, and I should feel proud of them individually and collectively, that I failed in my primary job as rabbi of this community. So chatati, I've done wrong, and here's why. Exactly one year ago today, on the Hebrew calendar, in this room, and at Yisker in the parallel room, something happened that bothered me very much about you. But then, after I thought about it, and after I digested it, it bothered me a lot about me. It actually happened two times in the same day, at the conclusion of two parts of the service. About half of the congregation got up and left. Now, for those of you that know me well, and I mean know me well, like perhaps we traveled to Washington together for APAC, maybe we played golf together, maybe we went on a trip to Israel together, maybe we've broken bread together over Shabbat or at a restaurant. If you know me well, you know I do not care whatsoever whether or not you leave services early. I don't. I don't take attendance at synagogue. Whether you come to services or you don't come to services and when you arrive and when you leave is between you and God. And for those of you that I see and I reach out to and I say, hey, I haven't seen you in a while, it isn't for guilt. It isn't because I'm wondering why we're not filling more in the pews. It's because I genuinely care about your welfare. Whether you come to pray or whether you come for the tuna fish is between you, God, and the caterer, not me. I just want to know that you're well. So your coming to synagogue is wonderful, but not the core of my existence and what I believe. So let me tell you what it is that really troubled me. What troubled me after both of those times, after the sermon ended and after Yisker, is that so many people chose to leave in a manner that showed very little concern for all of those people who chose to stay. When the room exits, and much more so in that room at Yisker time than in this room during the sermon time, it's like bedlam. And people are loud, and people are noisy, and the evaluation of the service begins. And that's fine. But here's the question. What about the people who are choosing to stay? Who aren't ready for those conversations and evaluations yet, but are rather choosing to stay because they want to have a conversation with God? You know, after working through my upset, I realized that this is my fault. That's my shortcoming as the rabbi of the congregation. And here's why. Because I failed to do a good enough job modeling a community that cares as much for its neighbor as it does for itself. And at the end of the day, I shouldn't be measured by the amount of membership that we have in the congregation, or our fiscal stability, or how many hours I'm in the office, or whether I'm visiting the sick, or if I'm teaching, but I should be measured by how I affect the community. Because a good rabbi is not a rabbi that teaches his community. A good rabbi is a rabbi that teaches his community how to teach others. That's the difference. 
a good rabbi is a rabbi that teaches his community how to teach others and that's where I've done a poor job we haven't done enough in enabling us to teach others it's an elementary lesson if you think about it it's the exact framework for the parenting model that Dory and I try to incorporate at home it comes from the Torah we're going to read today in the Mincha reading if we were to go on seven more verses we would see exactly what this says love your neighbor as you love yourself that's what we tell our kids every time something happens every time they're fighting every time there's an issue with us there's an issue at school whatever it is we say is this a haftalarecha are you loving your neighbor as you love yourself if you Evie were Elias in this situation how would you feel what would your emotions be like just a simple framework to which we follow the Talmud tells the story of uh, someone who wants to convert to Judaism and they come up to the house of Shammai and they say to Shammai teach me everything there is to know about Judaism but do it while you're standing on one foot so Shammai goes everything about Judaism while on one foot you gotta be kidding me you're crazy get out of here so the journeyman then goes to the house of Hillel says to Hillel same question teach me everything there is to know about Judaism while standing on one foot but Hillel takes the bait and he says it's easy love your neighbor as you love yourself that's everything you need to know about Judaism everything else in Judaism is commentary now go and learn it if you want to become Jewish and sends him on his way to me that is the proof text that the core of our religion is not about how often we put on tefillin and not about whether we drive on Shabbos but it's about where we drove to and what lives we made better it's about how putting on tefillin in the morning encouraged us to have a better day how it encouraged us to connect with others and it's not about the food that goes into our mouths nearly as much as it is about the words that come out of our mouths we all take a lot of satisfaction and seeing how we can make others love more than being loved but we struggle with it ourselves Dennis Prager gives a great explanation of why it is we love to see others being loved but why we do a poor job at it he takes a hundred parents in a room and he asks them this question what do you want more do you want your, par- your children to say to you as parents we love you or if you had to choose would you rather see them say to their siblings we love you the overwhelming answer by almost every parent in the room each time he asks we'd rather see the love to our siblings when a sibling looks at another sibling in the eye and says I love you or demonstrates their care and their respect one act or one word at a time almost every parent says it's a more gratifying act and I feel the same with my kids so Dennis Prager says that's the proof text that that's what God wants from us because we're God's children and when we behave in that way where we're kind to our neighbors and we love our neighbors and we're patient with our neighbors and we think about them then that brings God the exact same delight loving God is great but loving our fellow human is what really makes God happy I think that's the core that's the foundation of the ethics of Judaism how we treat our neighbor and I've done a poor job at modeling its primacy in our congregation so that it becomes our central ethic our second nature something we could do something we should do in every act that happens in this community I don't suggest for a minute that it doesn't exist here it happens a lot and I'm proud to be a member of this community and the many people who care of others but it's something we can do better and something that I can do as your rabbi and focus on much more so how do we change how do we begin to pivot and start to focus on these things 
So the first thing we have to do is look at ourselves critically and constructively. Primo Levi, the Holocaust surviving chemist and theologian, compiled a group of short stories that he published in 1985. And the title story, The Mirror Maker, is one of my favorites. It's a story about Timoteo, a man who is a descendant in a long line of people who make mirrors. Just mirrors that you put up and see a reflection of yourself. Six, seven generations before him, his family made mirrors. The problem was, Timoteo, who was inheriting this family business, found it quite boring. Boring to make a mirror. So he decided he was going to make special mirrors, unique mirrors, a different angle in the market. So first, he invents a mirror that makes everyone look thinner when they stand in front of it. Those sold like hotcakes. Then he invented a mirror that could make your lips lusher. And for a little compact size, you could keep in your purse. A lot of women bought those as well. Then they invented a mirror that could make things look larger. But the problem was the orders were way too big because people wanted to put them in front of their homes and in front of their cars. So that their homes and cars would look larger to people as they passed by. And especially to themselves when they looked out their window. But then Timoteo came up with his prize invention. What he really was after, the dream. It was a mirror that you put on another person's forehead when you talk to them. And in it you can see how it was that they envisioned you. How they saw you and what you looked like. So Timoteo, he invents it and he tries it out. First he tries it out with some of his old grade school friends. He puts it on their forehead, he starts talking to them. You know what he sees? He sees a crooked tooth, goofy, bedwetting kid who has trouble with math. And then he tries it out on his mother. What does his mother see? He puts it on his mother's forehead. He sees a vision of himself riding a bicycle in their driveway, falling and scraping his knee, and him running inside and his mother kissing it and making it better. Even though he's a grown man and adult with his own family, she, she still sees this little boy on the bicycle. And then he puts it on his wife's forehead, and what does she conjure up in his mind as he envisions it? A handsome, articulate, sweet, hard-working man that she loves very, very much, who's a wonderful father. To make sure that it was working, Timoteo put it on a wall, an inanimate object. What did he see? But a reflection of himself. Because walls and inanimate objects can't have thoughts of how they see us. It worked. His invention worked. So he put out brochures and flyers and advertisements everywhere to sell this wonderful mirror, and guess what happened? No one bought it. Because people were not interested in seeing how others saw them and what they looked like. And the few that did buy it found that they got mad at the people they were talking to and found them at fault for how they were seen as opposed to taking any responsibility for what it was that were their actions or how it was that others could see them in their eye. If it weren't Yontif, we all walked out into the parking lot and we found a booth with Timoteo selling these mirrors. Would we buy them? Would we use them? The first thing we have to do if we want to change is we have to be ready to look at ourselves constructively and critically. And then after we do that, we have to start looking for chances and opportunities to make a difference. Chances and opportunities where we can start to see that we, through our choice, can change the lives of others. I'm going to give you two real examples of that. The first is from a small liberal arts college called St. Francis in Illinois. And it's the story of a golfer by the name of Grant Weibark. He was at the college 
One of the, he's there on a college scholarship. He did quite well at the school and in playing golf. And he's in one of the finals in the competition for the region and the association that they're in. And he's on the 17th hole. And he finds out at the 17th hole that his team that he represents for his college already made it to the conference finals because they had done so well in their score. There was no way that they couldn't advance. He took a lot of satisfaction. But Weibark was the best player on the team. So Weibark realized if he parred the next hole, hit it in four shots as he was supposed to do, which was pretty easy for this guy, that he would win the tournament in addition to advancing to the conference finals. But he also realized that there was a player behind him from another team. And this player he had grown to know and grown to like very much because they had walked the course many times in other competitions. And that player was behind. And if Weibark parred, the player was eliminated from the conference finals. But if Weibark missed the shot, then that player advanced. So Grant Weibark intentionally took the ball and hit it out of bounds, scoring a two-stroke penalty, forfeiting his opportunity to lose, to win rather. He lost. He came in second place. And the player behind him, Seth Doran, parred the hole and advanced to the conference finals while not winning the tournament. It's a fascinating story. Now some will say that Grant Weibark, he's a sportsman. That's what it is to have sportsmanship. That's what it is to have collegiality. And some will say, you have no right advancing to a semi-conference finals that someone else forfeited. That's not the way to go up. You've got to earn it honestly. But it doesn't matter which side that you look at. It was a great moment of thinking about others before yourself. If you ask Weibark, he'll say, the team talked about it, he talked about it with them, and their goal was to advance to the conference finals. And once they had done that, that's all that they needed to do. Nothing else mattered at that point. And he also went out of his way to say that no one else lost an opportunity or was taken out of the running from making it to the conference finals as a result of the shot that he missed. He has no regrets in doing it. So no matter what side you come down on, you have to pause for a moment and realize that this guy, Grant Weibark, for at least, if not more, three minutes of his entire life, cared about the thoughts, feelings, and advances of another person more than himself. For that, he's my hero. One other quick example. A guy by the name of Nick Sidorakis. He is a senior at the Oklahoma State University basketball team, plays for the Cowboys. The NCAA has a rule, and the rule is that they allow 13 scholarship players per year per team. The problem was OSU, Oklahoma State University, had 15. But one of the players who got the scholarship went to another college, so now they're one over. So without being asked, Sidorakis goes into the coach's office as the team captain and says, I'm a senior. I'd like to forfeit my scholarship. Coach looks at him. What do you mean? He said, look, coach, chances are, because of the way I play, I might be able to play in the NBA. If not, I'll probably play in Europe. And regardless, I'm going to graduate with a degree in just eight months. I can pay back one year of college. And by doing so, I'll continue to play. I'll compete as a walk-on player like someone else who can't as a freshman year, who can't come in, doesn't have the means to do it. Let them have the scholarship so that we can all be on the team together. His coach said that in all of his years of coaching, he never saw a better model of what it meant to be a team captain. Of what it meant to raise your hand and say, Hineni, here I am, take one here. I'm going to lead by example. And Nick Sidorakis made a choice, not for someone he knew, but for someone he didn't know, because he didn't know where the scholarship would go, who it was that would have been cut. So Sidorakis raises his hand and says, let it be me. I'll pay my own way, coach. 
I chose these two examples from the sports world on purpose. Because the sports world is full of competitiveness, unsportsmanlike behavior, doping allegations, and people caring more about winning than another person's emotions. Can we think of ways that we could do the same thing in our lives? Renewed through the vehicle of this day called Yom Kippur? Ways that we can think about other people's feelings individually and collectively? Saying we're going to do it is easy. Executing on it? That's the hard part. The Torah gives us a great example of how it is we can strike at the perfect balance between caring for the needs of others without compromising the needs of ourselves. When it's not Yom Kippur and where we are currently in the Torah reading, it is the penultimate parasha. It's just the end and Moses has made it to the promised land. They haven't quite crossed in yet, but he knows he's going to. He's about to hand over the staff to Joshua and they're going to make it. They're just going to cross over the Jordan. They're going to be here. The Eretz Zavad Chalavudvash. This land that's flowing with milk and with honey. But then something happens. Reuven, God, and Menashe. Three of the twelve tribes, they say, uh, Moses, thanks for that beautiful poem and speech. It's really nice. I know you're excited after 40 years of wandering to take us into that promised land. One thing, uh, we're not going. Moses is about to become unglued. What do you mean you're not going? He says, listen. Over there, that land flowing with milk and honey, it looks great. You guys have a great time in there. Make sure you're right. But here, on this side, this is fertile land. There's grass here. There's places to grow. It's, it's hot during the day, but it's cold at night, which is perfect. And, and there's water here. We're shepherds. we got big flocks. This is where we need to be. This is the best place. Moses is about to lose it. He's going to have a conniption. You can see him in the text coming unglued. And he asked this question in Hebrew of Reuven, God, and Menashe. He says, Your brothers are going to cross over that Jordan River and go to the promised land that we have been wandering about trying to find for the last 40 years. And whenever we go into a new land, we know that we're going to have conflict. We're going to fight. There's going to be a war. There's going to be a battle. A battle's going to happen and then what? People are going to die. And you're going to stay over there because it's better for your flock. It's better for your profession. And at that moment, the most beautiful thing happens in the entire Torah. Where Uvein, God, and Menashe, they answer Moses perfectly. They say, no. No, Moses, we're going over there with you. Not only are we going over there, when the war happens, when the fighting happens, we're going to be in the front lines. We're not going to be in the back. In the very front. That's where we're going to stand. But after that war, after we put down our weapons, after the fighting, after our brothers and sisters from the other tribes establish themselves and make it their home, flowing with milk and honey, which it should be, after that, we're going back here. Back to where the grass is green. Back to where it's hot during the day and cold at night. Back to where this river is for our sheep. Because this is the best place for us. I love that story. I love that story because it tells us that we can do both. That we can care about others and we don't have to sacrifice ourselves in the process. Rabbi Daniel Hartman, who I studied with this summer, he suggests that Ruvain, God, and Menashe exemplify what it is to be a Jew in that answer. Because they stood up with their people at a time of need. 
They were courageous pioneers, but they also found the validity to speak out about their own personal needs. And they found a way to honor their brothers and their sisters without abandoning themselves in the process. When he said, we'll be there, we'll be there, count on us, but we're shepherds and we need to go back here, that's the core that we're looking for. That's the balance between the individual and the collective. Of loving our, brave, our brothers as we love ourselves, but not forsaking ourselves in the process. This coming year, we're going to introduce two components to our community that will better model shared love for our neighbors and strangers and underscore the importance of human relationships in our tradition. First, Temple Emmanuel will be introducing Shabbat Yachad. Shabbat Yachad will be a program where we will begin with four or five core families who will host in their home Shabbat dinner. There are no requirements to the Shabbat Yachad except for one. That if you're invited to one of these families' homes for Shabbat dinner, you need to reciprocate within a matter of two to three months. But not reciprocate to those that hosted you. Your job is to pay it forward. You have to invite someone else to your Shabbat table. They can be a member of this congregation or not a member of this congregation. It doesn't matter. But you have to open your home if a home has been opened to you. We're going to have classes here at the synagogue. We're going to have user-friendly literature on the blessings of the wine and the bread, how we make a Shabbat meal, the blessings over the wine, and to make people who might be less comfortable with what Shabbos dinner looks like a lot more comfortable. The idea is that if we have Shabbat Yachad once a month, and we start with five families that each invite two families to their home, that in a matter of two short years, literally hundreds and hundreds of people will be infected positively because of the kindness of others. And the best part of it is, it's not about your rabbi standing on the bima telling you how to behave as a Jew. It's about each and every one of you modeling the best, the most important values that our tradition has to offer. Shabbat Yachad will be, if done properly, an example of loving our neighbor and teaching each other how not only to learn, but how to incorporate Judaism into our lives. The second component we're going to incorporate this year is the theme of ethics as the core of our study. In the Sisterhood, the Men's Club, Torah Institute, Temple Adult Education, we will explore texts, issues, and thoughts related to ethics and the role and responsibility in relating to others. If the foundation of our religion is about human relationships, then ethics and morals is the perfect way to begin learning how to better those relationships and strengthen our connection to Judaism at the same time. My friend Rabbi Arnie Gluck, who's the rabbi in Princeton, shared a story with me about Rabbi Chaim of Volozhin. It's a story of a nobleman who's pulling his large carriage and is being pulled by four impressive stallions. But as he's driving along the dirt road, the sky's open, it begins to rain, and the carriage then gets stuck in the mud. He tries to pull the carriage out with the stallions, but they can't do it. He continues to whip them once after the other after the other, but nothing is budging. Innocently, a peasant comes by with a small carriage pulled by three ponies. The peasant says to the nobleman, Can I help? The nobleman bursts out into laughter. How are you going to help? I've got four large stallions here. You've got three little ponies. How can your three ponies pull out this carriage when my four stallions can't? The peasant said, Look, you're right. But what do you got to lose? The nobleman laughed. He says, If you want to, go ahead. So as he's laughing, the peasant hooks up 
his three ponies to the large carriage that stuck, gives one whip, and the three ponies instantly pull out the carriage. The nobleman is absolutely shocked. He says, how did you do that? How did that happen? How did you pull it right out of there? He said, well, tell me about your stallions first. The man sticks out his chest. He says, oh, my stallions came from the four finest stables in all of Poland. Stock, the very best. I had them bred special, the finest. The peasant says, oh, there's your problem. You see, those stallions, deep down, they're not related to each other. They don't connect. So every time you whip one on the tuchus with that whip, there's such a competitiveness in them that another one takes some satisfaction in it. But my ponies, they're all brothers. And when you whip one of them, the other two take the load on stronger so that they don't have to endure any more pain. That story, that story could be our story here. That story should be our story here. And this year, let's work to make that our story. Maya Angelou once wrote that I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how it is that you made them feel. She's right. That's what we do here. Today to reflect how we made others feel and how they made us feel. La tov and la ra. For good and for not so good. That's what it's about. How are we making others feel? Hillel said it in his words, Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's what it's all about. So, are we ready to change? Are you ready to buy to Mateo's mirror and look at yourself constructively? Are you ready to start saying, what can we do differently? Yom Kippur is the day. Now is the time we can all make that change. It can start in seconds when the sermon ends. You can rush out noisily and ignore the others around you that are praying. Or you can wonder, would I want to be disrupted if I chose to stay? You can ask the exact same question when the Easter service happens later. And it doesn't end there. It'll continue from there to the hallway, to the parking lot, to each and every destination that your feet will take you in the coming year. This year, as your rabbi, I'll be chanting Hillel's mantra and endeavoring to incorporate it into the fabric of our synagogue. You should do the same. What can you do for others? How can you see and be seen? How can you pay it forward? How can you find opportunities to show love and kindness to others? How can you care for your brothers and sisters without compromising any of your needs too? How can I begin to change and model that mantra for my family, my friends, my loved ones, in the temple, in a restaurant, in the office, and in a carpool line? Just by stopping to ask these questions, we will soon realize we're more than halfway to where we want to be. And hopefully, that's closer to God by being closer to each other too. Amen. And Gemar Chatimatova.